Chapter Twenty One of the Ashel Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Ashel Mystery by Mrs. Charles Bryce. Chapter Twenty One. Juliet dug her nails into the cracks of the stone floor with all the energy of despair, but in a moment her feet were over the edge of the pit and she was falling. Her fingers gripped the edge with a fierce tenacity, and for some minutes she hung there, minutes that seemed longer than all the rest of her life put together. And so she hung, her knees drawn up in a frantic effort to pull herself out of the depths, till her muscles refused any longer to contract and she felt herself gradually straightening out and growing, it seemed, heavier and heavier, till she knew that in one more second her fingers would slip from their hold and all would be over. But as she dropped into a straight position and wearily abandoned her efforts to raise herself, one of her feet suddenly touched some firm substance beneath it. Something narrow it was, for the other foot as yet still hung in space but some blessed solid thing on which it was possible to stand, as with a feeling of thankfulness and relief such as she had never before experienced, she allowed her weight to rest on it, and found that it did not give. She felt a sharp blow on the knuckles of her left hand, which made her withdraw it quickly and lean against the wall to steady herself. Mark was throwing stones at her fingers to make her leave go sooner, Another missed her narrowly and shot over her head. She drew down her right hand, and still leaning against the wall, felt about with her other foot for a support. She soon found it a little farther back, it seemed, than the first foothold. But more experimental investigation showed that it was really part of the same object. There appeared, indeed, to be several of them about, all near to the wall, so that it was plain that poor Julia, as she shot over the brink, had fallen outside and beyond them. What the bars were that she seemed to be standing on, Juliet could not at first imagine, and it was not till Mark, growing tired of waiting for a splash that never came, reached the conclusion that his ears had deceived him, and took himself and Julia's lantern off to other spheres of usefulness, that she perceived that a faint light penetrated into the upper part of the pit. When her eyes had become accustomed to it, she was able to make out that she was perched upon a portion of the roots of a tree which had grown in through holes in the wall. Three great roots there were, curling into and across the shaft of the pit, and disappearing down into the darkness below, where Juliet did not dare to look. She managed with great caution to stoop down and catch hold of the highest of the roots, and so to settle herself in a fairly comfortable position sitting on the middle root of the three, with her feet on the lowest, and her back against the top one. They might have been made on purpose, she told herself, her naturally high spirits and brave young optimism coming nobly to her rescue again. And she set herself to try and enlarge one of the holes in the wall, but she could not make much perceptible difference there. What it had taken centuries and the growth of a great tree to effect, could not be much improved on in an hour by one young girl, however strong the necessity that urged her. By the time she had exhausted her efforts, and must needs lean back and rest a while, 
the biggest hole was just wide enough to put her hand through, and she saw no prospect of enlarging it further. Through it she could see a corner of the lock, and the grey foot of Ben Gersey, but that was all. It showed, however, on which side of the tower she was, and she remembered the great beach that clung to the precipice below the place where the foundations of the castle sprang from the rock. At least she had always imagined it was below the foundations, but now she knew better. She thrust her hand out and waved it, but did not dare to leave it there. The terror Mark had instilled in her was too recent and too real. If she put out her hand, he would see it, and perhaps shoot it off, or at least know that he had failed to kill her as yet. Better he should think her dead like poor Julia. But was Julia really dead? She leant over and called down into the darkness. Julia! Julia! But no answer came, although she waited, holding her breath, and called again and again. Then she had fallen into the water? She must be drowned, even if the fall did not kill her. Poor misguided Julia! Better dead, after all, thought Juliet, with eyes full of tears, than alive and at the mercy of that terrible man. What disillusionments must have come to her sooner or later? Final disillusionings that could not be explained away. How horrible to find that the man you loved was like that. Nothing else in the world could be so appalling. Yes, Julia was better dead. As Juliet thought of the dreadful manner in which death had come to the unfortunate girl, she forgot her faults, forgot her strange views upon the justifiability of taking human life, forgot even that she had approved of Lord Ashiel's assassination, and contemplated bringing about his death herself, and remembered only the frightful nature of her punishment. And while she sat there clinging precariously to the twisted roots of the beech-tree, Juliet's tears streamed down into the watery grave. Hours passed, and darkness fell upon the world without. In the patch of lock that was visible to her, she could see a star mirrored. It cheered her somehow. What there was comforting about it she could not have said, but in some way it seemed to be an emblem of her hopes. She wedged herself tightly between the roots, laid her head down upon the uppermost of them, and, such as the adaptability of youth and health, slept on her dangerous perch like a bird upon a bough. With the day she awoke stiff and hungry, how long would it be before she was found? She felt braver under this new stimulus of hunger, and more ready to risk detection by Mark. After all, he could hardly get at her here, and someone else might see her if she signaled. She took off her shoes and stockings and pushed them through the hole in the wall, then her handkerchief, and finally the white blouse she wore was taken off and thrust out between the stones. She kept her hold upon one of the sleeves and wedged it down between the wall and the beech-root, so that the blouse might hang out on the face of the rock like a flag and catch the attention of some passer-by. From time to time, too, she squeezed her hand through the gap and fluttered her fingers backward and forward. She knew that the path by the burn ran below, and it was used constantly by the gillies and by the household. Only, of course, so early in the morning there was not likely to be anyone about, and she remembered with a sinking heart that people seldom look up as they walk. Yet, in the course of the day, someone would surely see it. She sternly refused to allow herself to expect an immediate rescue. She would not, she told herself, begin to get really anxious about it till evening. 
It would be long to wait, of course. She looked at the little watch which Sir Arthur had given her on her last birthday. It was six o'clock. She must be patient. But in spite of all her forced cheerfulness, the time passed terribly slowly. She found an old letter in her pocket and a pencil with which she scrawled painstaking directions for her rescue. She would push it through the hole, she thought, if she heard any sound of voices above the clamor of the burn. After that there remained nothing more to do, and the hours seemed to creep along more and more slowly, till each second seemed like a minute and each minute an hour. She tried to divert herself by repeating poetry and doing imaginary sums, and it was about eleven o'clock, when she was in the middle of the dates of the kings of England, that she heard Gimlet's voice hailing her in a shout from below. It was not till after her rescue, not till after she was given safely over to the affectionate ministrations of Lady Ruth, that Juliet gave way under the strain to which she had been subjected, and broke down altogether. Up till that moment the urgency of her own danger had prevented her from feeling as acutely as she would have in other circumstances the terrible fate of the Russian girl. But as soon as she herself was safe, the full horror of it settled upon her mind till thought became an agony. She was shaken by alternate fits of shuddering and weeping until Lady Ruth, who had a scathing contempt for doctors, was on the point of sending for one. The arrival of Sir Arthur, an hour or so after her release, did much to calm her. He had started post-haste from Belgium as soon as he heard of the tragedy, which was not till three days after it had occurred, and had spent the long journey in incessant self-reproach that he had ever allowed Juliet to go alone among these murderous strangers. The sight of his familiar face was full of comfort to the distracted girl and the knowledge that Mark was arrested and powerless to harm her, with the gladsome news that David was free again, combined to soothe her nerves and restore her self-control. The fear of one cousin began to give place insensibly to the dread lest the other should find her red-eyed and woe-begone, and soon the importance of looking her best when David should return occupied her mind almost to the exclusion of the terrors she had experienced. Thus does the emotion of love monopolize the attention of those it possesses, so that individuals may fall thick around him, and the surface of the earth be convulsed with the strife of nations, and still your lover will walk almost unconscious among such catastrophes, except in so much as they affect himself are the object of his affections. But not yet was Juliet to see David. His mother's health had broken down under the distress and worry of the accusation brought against him, and it was to her side that he hurried as soon as he was released from prison. While Lady Ruth carried Juliet off at once to the cottage, there to be comforted, fed, made much of, and put to bed, Gimlet and the men who had assisted him in the work of rescue stayed behind in the walls of the tower, to rig up with ropes and buckets, an apparatus by which to descend to the lowest depth of the oubliette, where poor Julia's body must be lying. They had little hope of finding her alive, nor did they do so. She was floating face downwards in the water at the bottom of the pit. In a grim, wrathful silence the men raised the poor, lifeless body, and with some difficulty brought it back to the light of day. When the gruesome business was done, Gimlet returned to the cottage, tired out with his night's work, for, like all the men on the place, 
he had been scouring the moors since the previous evening, when Mark's derisive words had first sent them hotfoot to assure themselves of Juliet's whereabouts. As he reached the cottage, the daily post-bag was being handed in, and among his letters was one from the colonel of Mark's regiment. "'My dear sir,' it ran, "'I have sent you a wire in answer to your letter received to-day, since in view of what you say I see that it is necessary to disclose what I hoped, for the sake of the regiment, to continue to keep secret. But, if, as you tell me, the innocence and even the life of Sir David Southern is involved, and you have good reason to consider McConachan the man guilty of his uncle's death, it becomes my duty to put aside my private feelings, and confess to you that I am unable to look upon Mark McConachan as entirely above suspicion. When he was a subaltern in the regiment I have the honor to command, he was a source of grave worry and trouble to me. From the day he joined I had misgivings, and though his good looks, lively spirits, and recklessness with money made him popular with others of his age, I soon discovered that his moral sense was practically non-existent, and considered him a very undesirable addition to our ranks. Still, I hoped he might improve and for a year or two nothing occurred to force me to take serious notice of his behavior. Unknown to me, however, he took to gambling very heavily, and must have lost a great deal more than he could afford, for he appears to have got deep in the clutches of money-lenders long before I heard anything about it. So desperate did his financial affairs become, that shortly before he left the regiment he was actually driven to forging the name of a brother officer, a rich young man with whom he was on very friendly terms. The large amount for which the check was drawn drew the attention of the bankers to it, and in spite of the extreme skill with which, I am told, the signature had been counterfeited, the forgery was detected, and the matter was brought before me. The victim of this fraud was as anxious as myself to avoid a public scandal, and it was arranged that nothing should be done for a year to give time to McConachan to refund the money. If, however, he failed to do so within that time, there would be nothing for it but to make the matter public. These terms were agreed on, and McConachan was told to send in his papers at once. The year allowed is now drawing to a close, and the money has not been forthcoming, so there is no doubt that Mark McConachan's need of obtaining a large amount is extremely pressing. My knowledge of his character obliges me to add that I consider him one of the few men I ever knew whom I could imagine going to almost any length to provide himself with what he so urgently requires. Please consider this letter confidential, unless you obtain actual proof of his guilt. I am, sir, yours faithfully, T. G. Ersford, Colonel Commanding 31st Lancers. Gimlet put the letter away with the other items of evidence of Mark's guilt. The telegram from the analyst in Edinburgh, the measurements of the footprints on the rose-bed, and of those other marks near the hedge by which he had first been mystified. It was another thread in the thin cord that, like the silken line Ariadne gave to Theseus, had led him to come successfully out of the bewildering labyrinth into which the investigation of the crime had beguiled him. End of chapter 21